What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, happy Thursday to you. Welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Is that you? Are are you a non-Catholic? Maybe you were a practicing Catholic years ago, maybe not. Uh, In any event, you've got a question or two about the Catholic faith. Why does the church teach this, but they don't teach this over here? And what is a synod? We can talk about whatever you want today here on Call to Communion. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Are you listening to us outside of North America? We've got a special phone number just for you folks, and that is 1 and then 205-271-2985. And, of course, you can always send us an email. We're going to lead off here in a moment with an email from uh, a listener who just wrote to us literally this hour wrote to us about 15 minutes ago and we're going to tackle that question in a moment the uh, email address ctc at ewtn.com charles beery is our producer matt kabinsky our phone screener jeff burson is on social media if you want to ask a question via youtube or facebook we are streaming there right now just put your question in the comments box and uh, jeff will see that He'll send it to us here in the studio, and we'll hopefully get that question answered on today's program. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Doing very well. How are you, sir? Oh, I'm doing decent. Thank you. This question literally came in moments ago, and as soon as at 1241 Central Time, David had just walked into the radio office, and I said, look at this. It just came in. He goes, Let's do it. So this is from Jessica. Good afternoon, Dr. Anders. I've watched your show for several months now. I so appreciate the information you share. It's been very helpful in my own current journey into the Catholic faith. Here are my questions. I have watched other YouTube channels that focus on Catholicism. Many are wonderful, as is yours. Some, not so much. One issue in particular was a Marian priest who stated that for every child that is aborted, a demon is released into the world by God. Hmm. I am very much pro-life, but his statement sounds ridiculous to me. Am I off base here? Where did this idea come from? You want to tackle that one first? Um, yeah, sounds off base to me, too. Sounds yeah. way off base. I mean, it would qualify as wackadoodle, I think. <laughs> and, and, of course, God has not revealed uh, this fact to be true. This is some priest's private speculation or... or based on some other criteria, but it's not divine revelation. That's not the teaching of the Church. So just because people are Catholic and believe in the integration of faith and reason does not mean they succeed in the integration (laughs) of faith and reason. Well said. Here's the second question. What exactly is the purpose of indulgences? I'm still stubbing my toe on that one. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So uh, at one level... The purpose of an indulgence is to encourage you in acts of piety. Okay. Right? Um, but the logic of an indulgence is that when we have to do penance for sin, uh, and perhaps that penance is done in purgatory, that uh, the 
merits of the saints and and uh, and prayers of loved ones can assist us in 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 doing that right and the lo- if you think of it i've used this analogy before for penance and purgatory you know if you my son throws a baseball in the house which is not very likely actually maybe he throws a copy of the lord of the rings in the house right <laughs> and it uh, and it busts a window even mm-hmm. when i told him not to throw copies of the lord of the rings around in a cavalier manner he busts the window he comes to me and says daddy i'm i'm really sorry and i say it's okay i forgive you we're reconciled but here is the dustpan in the broom now go clean up your mess yeah. and that, that's that's the way it works in in the catholic faith as well so god forgives us our sins but he he also hands us the dustpan in the broom now imagine in the story that you know the younger brother has thrown uh, his copy of the Lord of the Rings through the window, and his older brother comes by and remembers. Yeah, I remember when I did that. I I I threw Christopher Paolini through the window, and, <laughs> and uh, Dad made me clean up the glass too. It was no fun. Here, I'll help you out. And he comes by with his own dustpan and broom and helps the younger son perform his penance. That that's the logic of indulgences. It's our, the, the church's appeal to the merits of the saints uh, to help penitents in in uh, in fulfilling the temporal punishment due to sin, and. And the church has the has disposes of that those merits and can direct the use of indulgences, and so it usually sets conditions for obtaining one. And those conditions are normally set in such a fashion to encourage us in some particular act of faith or piety. So, for instance, you know, if you pray the rosary, you can get an, gain an indulgence for praying the rosary. If you read the Bible, you can get an indulgence for reading the Bible. So the church just attaches indulgences to things that it that it wants you to do. Very good. And then here's the final question. I'm currently a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod Lutheran, but I was baptized as an adult over two decades ago ago by a Southern Baptist pastor. Fully immersed in front of the church, the proper words were spoken in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, my RCIA leader is asking for a certificate, which I don't have. I have read that getting rebaptized is sinful and shouldn't be done. I've also read about conditional baptisms, but it doesn't sound like this would apply to my situation since I have no question that I was baptized properly. Any suggestions? Thanks again, Jessica. Yeah, thanks. So Catholic RCA directors have a really hard time understanding the way Baptists think about baptism. And that, what do you mean you don't have a certificate? You know, but <laughs> but if you ask that of a Baptist, you know, they're like, what do you mean a certificate? You know, we went we went down to the river, like the song says, you know, <laughs> more than once, and they don't, they don't do certificates. Um, so you're not the first person to have this problem. Now, you know, if you were baptized uh, with water flowing over your scalp in the mm-hmm. name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the celebrant mm-hmm. said, I baptize you, then that's a valid baptism. Now, you know, if you can't demonstrate that you were baptized, uh, it would really be up to the discretion of the pastor as to whether or not he wanted to perform a conditional baptism. There's certainly no objection to performing a conditional baptism. Um, and uh, just because you remember the event, I mean, doesn't doesn't mean there's... It, the, the conditional baptism is conditional. And the way it works is if this person is not baptized, then I baptize the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But if you are baptized, then no baptism takes place, and you're you're good to go. So if that's what the priest wants to do, that's fine. He may he may have some other criteria for determining that you were validly baptized, but it's his discretion. Very good, uh, Jessica. Thanks so much uh, for your email. Glad we could tackle it for you in a timely manner. I think that is. Uh that is the shortest period of time we've ever had an email, like 15, 20 minutes. Boom, we just answered that same day. That's wonderful. Very cool. In a moment, we'll get to the phones. We'll talk to Bailey in North Carolina, Cindy in Omaha, Barbara in Ohio. Three lines open right now at 833-288-EWTN for Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews. Stay with us. 
call to communion on this Thursday afternoon with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN Radio. If you have a question for David, do give us a call. We've got a couple lines open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We are big believers, as you might imagine, in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass here at the network. EWTN offers the Mass from Our Lady of the Angels Chapel live every morning at 8 a.m. Eastern, right after the Sunrise Morning Show. And uh, don't forget, we can also send you a link to your email inbox every day. Visit EWTN.com, click on the word subscribe. That'll open up a little sub-menu. Pick pick, uh, Mass. Don't pick on the Mass. Pick Mass, and uh, you'll start getting those emails right away. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Cindy, a first-time caller in Omaha, listening on the Great Spirit Catholic Radio. Hello there, Cindy. What's on your mind today? Hello. Do you hear me? Hi. Yes, yes. Go right ahead, Cindy. Okay, okay. I have an older son. He's uh, 34. I shouldn't say older, but um, he... um, The troubling... Fact that I have about he, he was raised Catholic, baptized Catholic, um, went to a Catholic school until he was eighth grade, and then in his early twenties he developed uh, addiction. He recovered about seven years later, so it's been about a good seven years. He's and he's worked very hard on himself in his recovery. However, he doesn't seem to believe in the Catholic religion or pretty much any Christian uh, type. I do believe he believes in Jesus. Um, he doesn't believe in confession to, you know, the priest. He One of the strong subjects that got brought up between me and him a couple of years ago was he doesn't believe in Satan or the devil. And he believes he... he he kind of read these books that had to do with God as the creator and God as the universe, and has pretty much stuck with that. He prays often, um, quite often. He believes God has helped him a lot. Uh, he's very spiritual, so to speak. But I can't seem to. Someone, he got into an incident a week ago with um, a lady he's dating and another friend. And they brought up Satan and the devil, and he was very offended by it. He came home and talked to me about it, and I said, well, um, there is the devil. He goes, no, no, no. And he goes, Mom, you've already talked about that before. I do not want to hear it. He was very, he, he just doesn't want to go there. I'm not going to the Catholic Church. I'm doing fine the way I am. So, so, so how I, can I help you? What can I do for you? I don't know how to approach him if... If I can get him to understand there is a saint, there is... Yeah, sure, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, here's my, here's my counsel. The Catholic faith teaches that the truths of the faith can be arranged in a kind of hierarchy. We call it the hierarchy of truths. And, and that doesn't mean that one truth is more true than another. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's, you know, it's true that I had whole wheat bread for breakfast. It's just not very important in the grand scheme of things, right? <laughs> And so the hierarchy is what are the what are the truths that are most central to the Catholic faith, and what others are maybe more derivative or further further down the scale. Mm. <clears throat> and as it turns out, the existence of Satan is a truth proclaimed by the Catholic Church as a dogma, 
But I'd say it's kind of far down the hierarchy of truths. It's it's not it's not the first truth, not the most important truth. So if you look at the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, for example, there are a lot of things about the Christian faith that you don't find in the Apostles' Creed. One of them that you don't find is the existence of Satan. Doesn't mean the authors of the Creed disbelieved in Satan, but that wasn't the kerygma. That wasn't the message of Jesus' incarnation and death and resurrection for our salvation. And that's really what is fundamentally central to the to the Catholic faith. And so my counsel would be, I wouldn't worry so much about the devil, and I would, I would be more concerned about his relationship to God through Jesus Christ and the sacraments of the Church. That, that's where the emphasis needs to lie. And, and, you know, the argument for the uniqueness of Christ boils down ultimately to his resurrection from the dead uh, as an historical event, and that's the way the apostles saw it. They said that God gave proof of Christ's uh, messianic ministry to all people by raising him from the dead. Christ's foundation of the of the church, to to whom he gave a, a commission uh, to teach everything that he had commanded, and a promise of divine assistance that he would be with the church until the end of the age, and that whatever it bound on earth was bound in heaven, whatever loosed on earth is loosed in heaven, and the 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 value of the Catholic Church is again it's kind of an empirically obvious thing if you look at the course of human history. It is the advance of the Catholic faith that has led to the advance of civilization and to ideas like human rights and human dignity, yeah. uh, to institutions of benevolence like hospitals and public education. I mean, uh, uh, all, all these things that we take for granted as goods of the modern world really have their roots in the Christian idea of the unity of faith and reason and the dignity of the human person created in God's likeness and image and the holiness of the saints. Uh, is uh, is another powerful evidence of the truth of the faith and the and the goodness of the faith, and so these are what we call uh, motives of credibility. What are reasons for which somebody might wish to give their assent to Catholic teaching? And I've listed several of them. There are many more. So that that's the the approach to take. I think not not so much to worry about the existence of the devil. I accept the existence of the devil because I'm, because I trust in the authority of the Catholic Church to teach that. Same sure. reason I believe the Bible. Like I wouldn't St. Augustine said I would not have believed the gospel except for the authority of the Catholic Church. Um I wouldn't believe in the devil except for the authority of the Catholic Church. So let's major on the authority of the Catholic Church. Now, can you come at your 34-year-old son with uh with a long list of apologetic arguments for the truth of the Catholic faith and win him over? No. <laughs> no. 34-year-old sons are are incredibly inoculated against catechesis by their mothers. Hmm. They they don't listen to mothers, uh, any of them ever. Right? Yeah. Even Saint Augustine was yeah. not conver- was not converted directly by his mother. That's right? right. That's right. What Saint Monica did was introduce him to other people that could be an influence, in particular mm-hmm. Saint Ambrose. And so what Monica did instead was she prayed for him like mad and clung to him like glue, and wouldn't leave him alone. And went and bothered bishops. She was a great bishop botherer, right? <laughs> and so, you know, that would be, you could take a, a page out of her play, playbook. So sure. I think the best thing for you to do is to love him without condition, to be present to him, to accompany him, to, 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 accompany him, to hear him, and to let the light of Christ shine in you like a, you know, like Jesus' don't let your light be covered up you know, like under a bushel and be salt of the earth, and so forth. So you let the, the love of Christ, the, the grace of Christ, be manifest in your countenance. Uh, pray for him. And then, you know, you could encourage him to be around other people who, who have a stronger faith than he does. Cindy, thanks so much for your call. We hope that's helpful for your situation there. That opens up a line for you right now at 
288-EWTN. Two lines open, as a matter of fact, 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this Thursday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Let's go to Bailey, a first-time caller from Elizabeth City, North Carolina, watching us today on YouTube. Hey there, Bailey. What's on your mind today? Oh, hello. Thank you for taking my call. Um, Dr. Anderson. Yesterday on your show, you brought up a statement that Pope Francis had made about marriage being between a man and a woman. Yes. I'm not sure um, if it was from the letter that he wrote responding to the Cardinals. Um, you mentioned his take, but also in the letter, he, you know, they were asking him about same-sex blessings, and, you know, his he, different people are terp- interpreting his words in different ways, and some people are saying he's approving it or allowing it or going to look the other way, and I... I was just a bit confused and wondering if you could tease that out for me. Yeah, I'll I'll do my best. Yeah, I appreciate the question. So, of course, as you know, several cardinals recently submitted a list of dubia to the Pope. Dubia are theological questions that typically are framed to to request a yes or no answer, clarification from from the Holy See. And, and one of those was about the legitimacy of blessing for same-sex couples. And, and in the response, what the Pope said was that the, the Church recognizes a very clear conception of marriage, a, an exclusive, stable, indissoluble union between a man and a woman, naturally open to the beginning of children, and that only this is called marriage. And other forms of union are not marriage, and that the Church can't approve rites or sacramentals that would undermine the fundamental, unique truth of the marital union. So that, that's the major part of the teaching. Now, he goes on to say that, if, in, in answer to this question and to the larger set of questions, and this is what prompts his concern, his pastoral concern, um, there are a lot of people who are nominally Catholic or ex-Catholic who are not living any kind of Catholic life at all, um, because they, maybe for moral reasons, they have rejected elements of the Church's moral catechesis, and they put themselves outside the Catholic faith, and and therefore pastoral outreach to those people who may have rejected the Church specifically because of its position on moral issues, going to those same people with the message that you are doing wrong, and the Church says what you're doing is immoral, is not likely to win them back, because that's why they left to begin with. Now, the answer, and this is how I, this is my read of the Pope, okay, this is my interpretation, you're welcome to disagree with me, um, uh, that, that uh, simply repeating the prohibition is not pastorally effective in winning those people back. In the same way that, say, in his own day, uh, Christ, there, there were people that were in the positions of objective immorality, and when Jesus approached them, he didn't just lead with, you know, thou shalt not. He went and had dinner with them. Yeah. Right. He, he found other modes of pastoral outreach mm-hmm. to be with people who were marginalized from the people of God, from the religious community, because of their objectively sinful behavior. Um, you know, the other one would be in John chapter 4, when he meets the Samaritan woman at the well. And he has a deep interpersonal dialogue with her where he delves into her personal history and, and expresses a kind of pastoral solicitude towards her. And... Uh, and that, I think, is the model that the Pope encourages us towards, that you, you have to find ways to go to the margins and to reach people that, for whatever reason, are beyond the, the scope of the Church's pastoral ministry. Now, um, he, he speaks a little bit more vaguely and ambiguously about would it ever be conceivable for someone to approach the Church for a blessing um, 
uh, if their life was in an objectively sort of dysregulated state. And he, this is where he's a little bit sketchier, and he says, I'm not saying what he says is bad, it's just right. not as clear. And he says, uh, well, look, if someone is approaching the church for a blessing, it, it, it gives evidence of some desire to be connected to God and to the sacramental ministry of the church, and that in itself is a good thing. And he's, also, he's just said, we couldn't extend any kind of blessing that would blur the distinction between sacramental marriage and other forms of immoral union. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't categorically say you could never bless someone in that situation. Um, you know, we, um, this is a very trivial, trivial, trivial example. Okay. But, you know, we have, um, we have the blessing of the pets. Yes. Right? Yes. Um, would you turn somebody away from the blessing of the pets because their <laughs> domestic life was dysregulated? I don't think anybody would turn you away from the blessing no. of the pets. So is there, some, is there some middle ground between it's okay to bless your pet, but I'm not going to bless your union? That could be a point of contact with people yeah. whose lives don't yet reflect the, the full truth of, of, uh, of Catholic dignity. Now, one other thing to keep in mind, so I grew up in the evangelical Protestant world, mm-hmm. and we were really big on... We're on the inside and you're on the outside. One door and only one, buddy. And we're on the right side and you're on the wrong side. Mm. And we know who the elect are and who the damned are. And let me tell you something. We're on the elect side, we think. All right? <laughs> well, that was a big part of the culture. Cardinal Newman, when he wrote his Apologia Pro Vita Suda, and he went from evangelical to Catholic. I, should, I keep calling him a Cardinal Newman. It's bad habits. St. Henry, John Henry Cardinal Newman. Yes. He says, that's the big difference between Catholics and Protestants, Catholics and Calvinists, is that we, we shade that awful antagonism and admit that there's a difference between sin and sin and weight of gravity and that uh, election and damnation, reprobation are things known to God and not us. And so we accept the idea that there's a kind of gradualism in moral progress, and it's not up to us to draw the hard black line and say, on this side of the line you're saved and on that side of the line you're damned. The goal is to move everybody, including ourselves, you know, deeper and deeper towards the truth and goodness of union with Christ while letting God determine the question of the salvation of souls. Mm-hmm. And that, that developmental and gradual understanding of moral progress uh, requires sometimes uh, pastoral discernment and creativity to figure out how to reach people that are maybe not all the way lost to the church's ministry, but maybe mostly lost to the church's yeah. ministry. Sure. Is that helpful for you? Yeah, but it's still a bit convoluted, but I guess it's the idea that you're still saying what you're doing is okay. I think that's how it's going to be read. Oh, absolutely. There are people who are going to take the Pope to mean exactly what they want him to mean. Oh, sure. Right? And that, see, that's always been the case in the Catholic faith. I mean, I, you know, we had situations in early modernity where popes were saying, you can't enslave Native Americans. And then you had Spanish conquistadors going... Hey, let's go enslave Native Americans. <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, there there have always been Catholics yeah. that are gonna do what they're gonna do, sure, regardless sure. of what the Pope says, no matter how carefully he tries to phrase his position or how much nuance or how much clarity or otherwise. Yes, of course there are gonna be people who who misread him to their own to their own destruction, but that's that's not the Pope's fault. Bailey, if I could just add one one more thing, and that is uh, keep an eye on the media that you trust. 
networks like EWTN, uh, sources like the National Catholic Register, uh, Catholic.com, our friends at Catholic Answers. These are the people that, that, that are going to give it to you straight exactly what the church is actually talking about here. If you're relying primarily on secular media, what we might call mainstream media, you may not get the actual viewpoint where the church is coming from. Thanks again for your call. In a moment, we'll talk to Barbara in Sunbury, Ohio, Peter in Chicago, Jerry in Independence, Ohio. We have one line open at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion with Dr. David Anders on this beautiful Thursday afternoon here on EWTN. Stay with us. It's called a communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. Hey, our friends at Divine Mercy Radio in North Carolina, they really need to hear from you next week. They are airing their 2023 Fall Pledge Drive all next week. So if you're listening to AM 540 in the greater Raleigh area or anywhere, please support your EWTN Catholic radio station. Very, very important. Helps these uh, local stations to pay the light bill, the power bill, all that, internet service, engineering. Um, You know, some stations play music. They have to pay for their music rights. Very important to support your local Catholic radio station. Here now is Barbara in Sunbury, Ohio, listening on the great St. Gabriel Radio. Barbara, what's on your mind today? Um, Hi, thanks for taking my call. I love the show. Thank you. Uh, Before I ask my question, I want to say we miss you when you're gone, Tom. You and Dr. Anders make a great team. Oh, you're very kind. I was actually in your area over the weekend. I was there at the Josephinum to visit one of our godsons. Oh, lovely. Well, yes, indeed. anyway, my question is, um, I was raised in a Protestant family with a uh, definitely an anti-Catholic bent. Okay. But um, as fate would have it, my my brother ended up marrying a Catholic, and their little son is going to be baptized this Sunday. And my husband and myself, um, over a year ago, started converting to the Catholic faith, and uh, because of the baptism, my mother and my sister are going to be attending Mass with me this Sunday um, for the baptism, and they've never been in a Catholic church other than for a fish fry, <laughs> and I didn't know how I might prepare them for the Mass. I hope that they'll, you know, see the beauty and the truth in it, although I know I can't, you know, control how they perceive it, but... Mm. And my thought was to just tell them to just, you know, relax and observe and don't worry about following along, you know, just don't worry about, you know, what's going on around you. Just observe and and enjoy it, you know. But I don't know. What would you suggest? Well, so, you know, a lot depends on, on your relatives and their disposition and their openness. But I can tell you in general terms some things that I would like Protestants to be aware of, and you can decide for yourself how much of this would be appropriate to share. Um, the, the biggest area of misunderstanding, I think, between for Protestants in attending the Mass has to do with their whole disposition to worship. Because depending on the kind of Protestant you are, uh, you, you may very well go to Sunday morning with the expectation that you're going to receive something, um, primarily information, exhortation, uh, coming in the form of a sermon that's generally quite long, can be mm. 45 minutes long. 
And there are other parts of the worship as well, but really the, the, the meat and potatoes of it is that the pastor's job is to deliver a message that I'm to interiorize that will change me, challenge me, and help me throughout my week to live a Christian way of life. Nothing wrong with that. It's just not what Catholics go to Mass for. And so if, if you church hop as a Protestant, and you're a former Protestant, so you know this, many times you will evaluate a church based on the quality of the preaching. And, and people will make decisions about where to go to church based on that criteria. My, my own father was Presbyterian, and he, uh, he turned down opportunities to move out of town and do other things and make more money because he was so attached to the preacher in our home church. And he, really? He didn't want to go anywhere else where he couldn't listen to this guy preach. Wow. You know? Okay. So that's a big deal for Protestants. Um, uh, now, there's another kind of Protestant, and this is a more modern innovation, that goes to church— um, because they want to uh, sing. They want to have a certain kind of worship experience. Um, and they may conceptualize that as, as uh, inviting the Holy Spirit to come and move in their life in a non-cognitive way. If the sermon is moving in me in a cognitive way, the worship service moves me in a non-cognitive, emotional way uh, that's understood to be the action of the Holy Spirit in my life. This feeling of elevation and transcendence that I get when we're all gathered together in this praise song, uh, that's the Spirit coming in power, and I and that's what empowers me throughout the rest of my week. And neither of those is the Catholic conception of worship. And if you come to the Catholic Church to evaluate it with either of those criteria, you can be woefully disappointed most of the time. Um, uh, the... As you know, the Catholic Mass is divided into two parts, the Liturgy of the Word and the Liturgy of the Eucharist. And the way they work together, the way they function, you remember when the Israelites came back from exile in Babylon and Ezra and Nehemiah, and Ezra reads the law to them, and then the Israelites respond, we will do it. Right? Here's the proclamation of the covenant. Here's our response. That's the way to conceive of the relationship of the Liturgy of the Word to the Liturgy of the Eucharist that the Liturgy of the Word sets forth before us not, not an info dump, right, <laughs> uh, you know, of, uh, of doctrine, but the terms of the covenant. And that's why the, the, the reading of the gospel is such a central part, because this is the message of Christ himself. We read one of the earliest descriptions of the Mass comes from St. Justin Martyr in chapter 65 and 6 of his great apology. And he describes the, the reading of the memoirs of the apostles and prophets and the one who presides, that being the priest, exhorting the congregation to do the good things they find therein, right? That, that's a very different conception, like, hey, see what Jesus just said to do? Let's all do that, right? That's really all the homily is. It's not supposed to be this lengthy exposition of the biblical text with scientific exegesis and 32 applications. And the purpose, again, is like, we're just setting forth the terms of the covenant. This is what it means to live a Christian form of life, to enter into the mind of the people of God, you know, from the Old and New Testament, and affirm that identity. And then the other half of the Eucharist, of the, of the liturgy, the liturgy of the Eucharist, is that response. It's that affirmation back to God, where mm. we pledge ourselves to his will. And the centerpiece, of course, is not Holy Communion. The centerpiece is not Holy Communion. That's the one place where Catholics themselves have become detached from their own tradition. They've come to think that the centerpiece is Holy Communion. And again, that's a sort of passive, receptive thing, the way Protestants go to get something. What the traditional teaching of the Catholic Church is that the centerpiece of the liturgy is the holy sacrifice of the Mass, not the reception of Holy Communion. It's the offering of something to God 
not the passive reception of something from God. Now, I'm getting to communion in a minute, right? But the real key comes when the priest, before the, the institution, remember he says, pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours, pray that my sacrifice and yours will be acceptable. That's the heart of the whole thing, the offering of our sacrifice. What are we offering? Well, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. Remember the, the St. Faustina's prayer, I offer you the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. Thy you know, beloved Son, in atonement for my sins and those of the whole world. Where do we do that? In the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. Yeah. So we are there to offer the sacrifice of Christ, who's present for us sacramentally on the altar, and ourselves along with him. St. Paul says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship. So it's the offering of Christ and ourself along with him in response to this covenant proclamation. Here are the things that are the Christian way of life. Yes, we offer ourselves. We offer them together with the sacrifice of Christ in affirmation of this covenant. And then the reception of Holy Communion is the completion of that act of oblation, where in receiving Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity, uh, we seek to be drawn into ever closer union with him to make the realization of that sacrifice ever more perfect. Um, and so how do you evaluate a Mass? Well, um, you'd have to evaluate it ultimately by an interior criterion. How, how sincerely, how efficaciously, how devoutly have I made that interior offering? St. Pius XII, Pope Pius XII wrote that in the Mass there's the outward sacrifice and the inward and that by far the more important is the inward. Mm, yes. And so you really can't evaluate the Mass, its efficacy in my life, without evaluating the sincerity of my own self-offering. And that's, that's just such a profoundly different way of conceiving of Christian worship from the ones that I described in Protestantism. Yeah. Um, can you communicate all that? Probably not. But if you could sum it up, it ain't all about the sermon. Exactly. And if they, if they had to focus on something, I would actually have them focus on the ordinary of the Mass. Mm. The text that they're going to find in the Missalette, mm-hmm. not only the biblical readings, but then, you know, the, the, the collect at the beginning, um, and then the various parts of the, of the ordinary, from, you know, from the Gloria to the Sanctus to the Agnus Dei, um, and, uh, and, to, and to attend to the words of the Eucharistic prayer, whichever one the priest decides to, to use. And you might actually run through the Eucharistic prayer with them before you go in and show them the logic of the sacrifice as it's displayed for us in the text. Great stuff there, Barbara. And if you missed any of, any of that, you may want to uh, check out the podcast. It's available uh, in a couple of hours at EWTN.com slash radio, EWTN.com slash radio. Click on the podcast button. Thanks so much uh, for your call. Tonight on The World Over with Raymond Arroyo, very important program. Uh, his guests, Edward Penton, also Raymond Cardinal Burke, Gerhard Cardinal Mueller, Robert Royal and Father Gerald Murray. They're all going to be talking about the start of the Synod on Synodality in Rome. Check it out tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern, on EWTN radio and television. Which leads me to a question from Molly on Facebook. She says, I have been hearing a lot about this Synod stuff. What exactly is a Synod? Yeah, thanks. So I appreciate the question. In, uh, in Christian antiquity, Synods were local gatherings of bishops in the church to discuss matters of doctrine and policy in their regions, mm-hmm. and they would decide issues of importance, and and they they typically had a kind of local 
authority. Some of them, there have been synods that whose decisions were so important that they came to have a kind of universal significance. Mm-hmm. A famous synod from the sixth century was the Synod of Orange. Um, that was it began as a local dispute about the doctrine of grace, but the decision of that synod was re- soon recognized universally to be the orthodox position, and sort of got woven into uh, the Catholic understanding of the of, uh, of predestination and justification. Um, and uh, and the synods like that also provided a kind of precursor for the ecumenical council, which really is an authoritative meeting of all the bishops throughout the world. So that's what synods were in their origins. There were these local meetings of bishops. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, in the pontificate of Paul VI, Paul VI decided to, to to convene a regular synod of bishops, not an ecumenical council, but a group of select bishops who would meet on a regular basis to advise the Pope on matters of importance to the universal church. So it's just a consultative body to help the Pope. Um, Now, what Pope Francis has suggested is that that idea of a consultative body where people who don't individually or even collectively have authority to decide, you know, matters of great moment, Mm -hmm. but still can be gathered together to help the pastor, the, the supreme pastor of the church and his ministry, that that could actually be a model for how we think about pastoral ministry throughout the universal church. So he encouraged, over the last couple of years, every diocese in the world to host a, a series of meetings, synodal dialogues they were called, where members of the faithful, priest and laity, would be able to gather and express their pastoral needs to their ecclesiastical shepherds. And the, the results of those were, were gathered together in documents that were forwarded to the Holy See, um, and then a kind of a program for uh, pastoral concern was, was drawn together, and at the regular meeting of the Synod of Bishops, they're going to consider the results of all these local synods to say, you know, what are the pastoral needs of the people of God that the church may presently be overlooking, and mm. is there anything we can do about that? Okay, well, there you go. Uh, Molly, thank you f- for your very timely question. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Peter is a first-time caller in Chicago listening on the great WSFI. Hey, Peter, what's on your mind today, sir? Yes, hello. First, I'd like to thank you for your program. Over the years, I found it very intellectually stimulating. Thank you. Even if sometimes I, after listening to it, I'm still not quite uh, convinced of some of the arguments put forth, but such as where Christ was uh, after three days after uh, his uh, crucifixion. But the question I'm calling about today is this, and I'm taxing Dr. Anders' uh, historical knowledge about this issue. Uh, I don't know how to put it. Let me put it this way. Who, what, and where was Jesus before the Incarnation? Yeah, thanks. Uh, before I answer that, I'll uh, I'll share something else with you. You said sometimes you listen to the show and you're not quite convinced. That makes two of us, <laughs> right? Um, uh, C.S. Lewis, who I'm a great fan of, once said that no Christian doctrine seemed less compelling to him than the one that he had just offered a defense of. Mm. Right, in that he was keenly aware of his own intellectual deficiencies in, in fully accounting for the truth of the Christian faith. And that I think that's true of anybody who's in this business. So um, sometimes we're not convinced ourselves of our own answers, and we always try to defer to the higher authority of Scripture and tradition and the teaching authority of the Church. And right? we all keep learning. We just, that's right. We just keep that's learning. Exactly right. I'm, I'm thinking quickly here of the, the great uh, cellist Pablo Casals. You may remember him. Of oh, I just think about him every day. Every day, well, just like uh, the, <laughs> the Roman, uh, Empire. Roman Empire, right, of exactly. course. Well, he was asked when he was in his 80s, why do you still practice every day? And he said, well, I'm, I'm starting to see some progress. 
There you go. I just love that. There you go. That's fantastic. So anyway, where was Christ before the Incarnation? Where was Jesus before the Incarnation? So here's the Catholic teaching, drawn mostly from the Gospel of John. Uh, God exists eternally, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And uh, the person of the Son, the eternal Son, whom John calls the Logos, the Word, the reason, the principle, um, uh, existed as God. That means a, a spirit without a body, omniscient, omnipotent, um, omnibenevolent. And that, uh, that the second person of the Trinity, the Logos, assumed a human nature. So you have a divine nature assuming, taking on a human nature. And that, that divine person being born of the Blessed Virgin Mary in the first century in Judea. Well, in, yeah, in Bethlehem. Hmm. And so the child that was born was named Jesus. So properly speaking, Jesus was born of the Blessed Virgin Mary. But the Word of God, the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, is eternal. So you have an eternal person assuming a human nature. And that divine human person being given the name Jesus by his parents. Okay. And there you go. Thank you so much for your call, Peter. Appreciate that. Jerry is in Independence, Ohio, listening on AM 1260, The Rock. Hey, Jerry, what's on your mind today, sir? Yeah. Hey, Dr. Anders. Thanks for taking my call here. So my brother recently had an encounter with a Jehovah Witness, and he tried telling him that Jesus was actually Archangel Michael, and he had brought up revelations and pointed to, you know, certain parts of the Bible, including revelations. And uh, I can't quite wrap my head around that. Uh, why do they believe that Jesus would be Archangel Michael, if that's the case, or maybe he misspoke? I wasn't there for the conversation. Yeah, but, thanks. Uh, so, so here's why they would believe it. So the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses knew enough Greek to be dangerous— like, I, I, when I was growing up, I knew a guy who one time said that he had a friend who'd learned just enough karate to get beaten up, <laughs> you know, and that's about how much Greek he learned. He learned just enough Greek to get beaten up. Mm. And because he thought he could read Greek and he couldn't, he grossly misread the prologue to the Gospel of John that teaches that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And he misread that to imagine that John had said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Oh. That's not what the text says. And there's a very simple explanation in Greek grammar as to why he made that mistake. And there are rules of predication in Greek that have to do with the placement of de definite articles uh, and where they fall in the syntax of a sentence. And if you don't know the rules, you're going to get it wrong. And he didn't know the rules, and he got it wrong. And uh, if you wanted secondary evidence for that, it's interesting that the most viciously Trinitarian people on the planet are the Greek Catholics, right? The, and the Greek Orthodox. The Greek speakers are the ones that are the most dogmatically Trinitarian of anybody, right? Okay. So he, the idea that the, the Greek says this other thing is belied by the witness of Christianity in Greece, of all places, okay? But that's, that's where he got that idea. And he, he lived at a time when it was fashionable to imagine that some American founder in the 19th century or British founder in the 19th century could rethink the whole Christian question back to its origins and find out where everybody else had gone wrong. Everybody for 1,900 years was wrong, and I've finally gotten it right. That was, a, that was a common disease at the time. We have all kinds of new religious movements popping up with that, that sensibility. 
And so the foundation of his quote-unquote insight was that the church had gotten the Trinity wrong. And so he, he basically resurrected something like the ancient heresy of Arianism, which was the teaching that, uh, that, uh, that the Logos was not God with a capital G full stop, but a God, a divine being that was a creature made by God at some point in time. And uh, angel Christology, the idea that Christ was an angel, not Michael specifically, but that he was some kind of angel, um, uh, has floated around in, in the history of heresies for a long time. It's not, it wasn't novel to him. There have been other people that have made that claim. And they, they didn't last very long, but uh, it wasn't the orthodox belief. But, it, 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 you know, so he digs around in history and finds that and goes, oh, that must be the case. And he does his little exegesis and tries to substantiate that in Scripture, and so he, which is a very Protestant way of looking at the Bible, and, uh, and comes up with a tortured and tendentious argument for being St. Michael. Um, now, how would I refute that? Well, first of all, the book of Hebrews chapter 1 says explicitly that Christ was not an angel. Just says it flat out. Okay, yeah. so you've got that. Um, but arguing scripture with Jehovah's Witnesses is frustrating um, because they are not open to other points of view at all. Right? They're very dogmatic about it. So I think the better approach is less direct, and that is not to go verse for verse in a you know tit for tat argument about the meaning of this or that text, but to undermine the way in which they rely on the Bible which, of course, is through the lens of the Watchtower Society. So I would go straight to their doctrine of religious authority and say, why do you think the Watchtower Society is infallibly right? Did Christ establish the Watchtower Society? And if so, what's the evidence for that claim? And there is none. There is none. Moreover, how has the Watchtower Society's historical record been? Very poor. They have made multiple prophecies regarding the end of the world that all have been proven wrong. There is no good reason to trust the religious authority of the Watchtower Society. And there it is. Jerry, thanks so much for your call. Jeff is in Jacksonville, Florida, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Jeff, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, Yes, I was just calling uh, about the earlier caller who was in the RCIA and needed to prove that they were baptized by a Southern Baptist pastor. As a former Southern Baptist, uh, and I was a Southern Baptist deacon, um, the Southern Baptists keep very accurate records when they baptize someone, regardless of whether it's in the river or in the baptistry in their church, because when you're baptized in the Southern Baptist Church, you become a church member, a voting church member. So if this person knows uh, the church that the pastor was pastor of, or even maybe the city or town, they should be able to call back to that church um, with an approximate time that they were baptized and with their name. And the church secretary should be able to find records of their baptism because they are official church members when they're baptized. And uh, so that should be able to help them out. As long as they have an idea of the church they were baptized in, they don't even need to know who the pastor was, um, or the town, you know, they could call the Southern Baptist churches in that town. They should be able to find it. Well, there you go. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, um, you know, when I became Catholic, I was not baptized in a Baptist church. I was baptized in a Presbyterian church. But I had to do that. I had to call up the Presbyterian church and say, uh, you know, 
where's my baptismal certificate? And um, here's the here's the little secret. I don't think they had it. Oops. So I just told them this is when I was baptized, and they wrote me one. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> that, well, you know, I was baptized in the Southern Baptist yeah. Church in St. Louis, and I had no problem getting that information from them Fantastic. way back in the day. Uh, Jeff, thanks so much for your call. Kimball is in Northern California. And uh, Kimball, what's on your mind today? Hi, I had a question about natural versus sac- uh, sacramental marriage. Sure. Uh, so my question is, I was recently baptized I want as a Catholic about a year and a half ago, or just before I was baptized last Easter. Mm-hmm. My wife is not baptized, <clears throat> and I understand, like, you know, annulments and stuff, like you can basically get annulled for those reasons. Like, what kind of responsibilities do I have as a, cat, a new Catholic with an unbaptized wife? Am I held to the same, like let's say, standards that a um, sacramental marriage is held to, and what is the Church belief on sacramental versus natural marriage? And I had an RCIA director uh, in my parish. My Well, I don't go to that parish anymore, but my the parish I was going through RCIA in tell me that I'm, like, I'm basically in like a, a sinful situation. Situation. Okay. okay, thanks. So the your your RCI director told you that you were in a sinful situation because why? Because I'm not sacramentally married. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Does not know what he's talking about. The only reason that he could suggest your sin your situation was objectively sinful is if one of you had been married previously, and so there would be a presumption there of of bigamy or polygamy or adultery or something. But if neither one of you was in a valid marriage before, and you, you can contract a valid natural marriage, and that is not a... Adam and Eve did not sin by getting married, <laughs> right? And, and you, do not, you do not commit a sin against your wife by becoming Catholic. That's absurd, yeah. right? So the only thing different for you in terms of the standards you're held to uh, is that if your wife were unwilling to remain married to you because of your conversion because you became a Catholic, she says, I'm done with you. Um, that is actually one situation where the Catholic is not bound to indissolubility. It's called the Pauline privilege. But in terms of your moral life, yeah, it's the same as for a sacramental marriage. You just don't have the sacramental graces. You have to get those graces from other sources. But no, you're not in sin because your wife is unbaptized. That's nuts. See you tomorrow here on Call to Communion. God bless. God bless.